Hi, hello, I'm Gary, and this is episode 98 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles, and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On the show today, we'll be looking at carbon. More importantly, topics such as carbon offsets, carbon capture and storage, and decarbonisation. Before we start, I wanted to give a shout out to the guys at the Yorkshire EV Club. They're having a meet next Sunday, the 25th of July, at the Elmwood Farm Pub in Sheffield. It's 10am to 2pm and the pub has great food, plus there's four Instavolts, a Greg's and a Starbucks nearby. I'm hoping to get along there if I can, so hopefully I'll see some of you there. Our main topic of discussion today is carbon. It's a big topic for something which is, at its heart, a really small atom. But first, a story. You know I like to start my podcast with a little story or anecdote wherever possible. Usually it involves me meeting an EV driver at a charger or an EV meet and asking them a question and working out the discussion based on the answer. But not this time. This time we're doing some time travel. Ready? I had a job many years ago where I was living in one country and working in two cities in another country. I would take a minimum of three flights per week for 48 weeks a year. On more than one occasion, I took several more flights than that in a week. My record was 13 flights in 11 days, and this was back in the time of the 737-200 being popular. A great workhorse plane, but one which was not as fuel efficient as it could have been, nor as fuel efficient as the current 737-800 model, which burns, oh, a measly 3,100 litres of jet fuel per hour. For a time, I did the run into Berlin from Frankfurt every week, and that was done in an aging 727 aircraft, which left visible thick black smoke trails from its three old Pratt & Whitney engines at the back. I also did many long-distance flights. At one point, I went to America eight times in a single year, as well as Cairo, Manila, Cape Town, Dubai, Hong Kong and Shanghai. Flying was part of my life, and it was all completely normal for me. I could find my way through an airport quickly and painlessly, dipping into the executive lounges where possible. It just wasn't unusual. And then just to add insult to injury from a carbon footprint point of view, when I was in England, I drove a lovely Porsche 911, three and a half litre flat six boxer engine. Averaged about 28 miles a gallon if I didn't cane it too much. But it's a Porsche. How can you drive it and not cane it too much? However, I stopped doing this though about 15 years ago. Wrote off the 911 in an aquaplaning accident and left my travel heavy job for something a little bit more local. And in a more recent uh, job, I had the occasion to be privy to a number of people who have similar lifestyles to what mine was back in the day. They live fairly local to me and they travel very regularly, at least two flights per week every week. Mainly European, but often transatlantic, Boston, Chicago, even Los Angeles. Between us, we have a huge carbon footprint. It's estimated that aviation alone accounts for 2% of the global emissions. If you include travel as a whole, shipping, cars, planes, trains and coaches, that figure rises to 8%. As I look back now, I shudder at the amount of carbon I personally was kicking out into the atmosphere. I even got my own pilot's licence so I could add that little extra bit from a single engine Piper Cherokee in which I could barely afford to fly. Now I'm acutely aware of the fact that my personal carbon footprint is incredibly big and there's almost no way I can offset that. And we'll talk about offsetting a little later. Now, with the recent climate-related issues we've been having, freak Arctic temperatures in the high 30s Celsius, extreme heat in the Pacific Northwest of the US, freak cold snaps in Texas alongside fossil fuel incidents such as the burning sea in the Gulf of Mexico, it's easy to think we've passed a tipping point in climate change from which we can't recover. In reality, 
there's always something we can do. Reducing this, substituting that, offsetting the other. Things we'll talk about in a few minutes. But at the heart of it, what we do can be summed up in three little words. Stop burning stuff. Over the next few minutes, I want to go through a number of specific topics in the area of quote-unquote carbon. I'll talk about what these topics mean, why they're important or not, and how they affect you as an individual. So why is that important? Well, as we know, there's this thing called climate change. They used to call it global warming, but people who didn't think it was real were coming up with arguments such as, but the winters are much colder, so where's all your global warming then? Sorry, I did a Bobby Llewellyn and went all nasal. And so they made the phrase climate change to avoid confusion. And the scientific consensus is that it's accelerating due to man-made factors. And the main man-made factor is the number of pollutants and greenhouse gases being chucked into the air. CO2, carbon dioxide, is one of the gases causing the Earth to warm. Many sceptics, though, think that isn't right and that it's the sun causing the Earth to warm through natural cycles. Well, we know it's not the sun because the amount of sun reaching the Earth is actually decreasing and temperatures in the troposphere, the higher levels, are falling. It's getting warmer lower down because of the greenhouse effect, a layer of greenhouse gases trapping the heat in the atmosphere and causing things to warm up. This is caused, amongst other things, by carbon that's in things like fossil fuels being released into the atmosphere when we burn things. But there are other GHGs, greenhouse gases, which are contributing to this. Methane is one. It's six times more dangerous as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. And methane has lots of sources, one of which is that it gets released when natural gas is burned off into the atmosphere as a result of being a byproduct of oil exploration. And that's why the main thrust of this topic is that little three-word phrase. Stop burning stuff. Burning stuff releases trapped carbon in the form of carbon dioxide that gets into the atmosphere and it warms things up. Oil comes from old dinosaurs and prehistoric flora and fauna, which are all carbon-based. The carbon they had in their bodies is released when we burn oil in any form. Petrol, diesel, plastic, natural gas, an oil exploration byproduct. But it's also released when you burn wood or peat or any sort of biomass such as wheat, straw or other crops. And all this carbon ends up in the atmosphere and needs to be dealt with somehow. So you've probably heard about a number of things that we can do to try and mitigate the effects of carbon in the atmosphere. There are phrases such as carbon offsetting, carbon capture and storage and decarbonisation. So let's get a few definitions, shall we? Carbon offsetting. A carbon offset is a reduction in emissions of carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases made in order to compensate for emissions made elsewhere. Offsets are measured in tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent, CO2e. One tonne of carbon offset represents a reduction of one tonne of carbon dioxide or its equivalent in other greenhouse gases. Carbon capture. Carbon capture and storage, or CCS or CCUS, is the process of capturing carbon dioxide before it enters the atmosphere, transporting it and storing it for centuries or millennia. Usually the CO2 is captured from large point sources such as a chemical plant or a biomass power plant and then stored in an underground geological formation, which is a hole in the ground, basically. Uh, Decarbonisation. A decarbonised economy is an economy based on low carbon power sources that therefore has a minimal output of greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere, specifically 
carbon dioxide. So now we have a few terms of reference. Let's look at these in a bit more detail. We'll start with carbon offsetting. A reduction in emissions of carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases made in order to compensate for emissions made elsewhere. Sounds like a good thing, right? No. Well, yes, better than nothing. But what it really means is burn stuff, then do something to balance the equation at the other end. You're still putting carbon into the air somewhere. Sure, you might be taking it out elsewhere, but you might also be taking out other greenhouse gases instead and leaving the carbon in the atmosphere. Plus, this doesn't reduce the carbon levels that already exist, as you never take out more than you put in, so the already high baseline remains. There are over 200 types of projects suitable for generating carbon offsets, and these include using renewable energy, um, offsets used to reduce the cost differential between renewable and conventional energy production, increasing the commercial viability of a choice to use renewable energy sources, and methane collection and combustion, which takes methane and converts it to CO2, which seems like a pretty poor way of offsetting carbon, if you ask me. There's also carbon credit schemes where quotas of greenhouse gases are allocated to countries, who then sell these quotas to companies in the form of credits. If you buy credits for a million tonnes of carbon dioxide, that's how many you can emit. See the problem here? A recent Guardian article, link in the show notes, summarises quite succinctly. Charlie Kronick, a senior climate campaigner at Greenpeace UK, said, This plan fails to get to grips with the real challenges of carbon credits. It's a trader's charter written by and for the companies that want to buy and sell pollution, not cut it. It ignores what leading scientists have made clear, that offsetting can't be used instead of action to directly cut carbon emissions. Polluting companies will be rubbing their hands at the idea that this get-out-of-jail card allows them to greenwash their ongoing emissions at exactly the time the world needs to dramatically cut them, end quote. So basically, an offset is something created to allow companies to keep polluting while giving them the impression they're not actually doing so. So let's look at carbon capture and underground storage, CCUS, or CCS. Not to be confused with CCS, which is the charging standard. Try and keep those separate. The principle is quite interesting in that captured carbon can, in theory, be used for other things. Pulling carbon dioxide from the atmosphere means it can be converted to fuel, say, a starship. The carbon dioxide can be combined with water in a Sabatier reaction to make methane, but it requires electricity, which can be derived from renewable sources. And while that doesn't stop the rocket from emitting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, the whole launch cycle can be made carbon neutral by pulling CO2 back out of the atmosphere to make rocket fuel again. Capturing carbon using scrubbers is the most common method today. To pull the carbon dioxide from the air, minerals like quicklime are used. They react with the air and the carbon joins with the mineral to become a different mineral like calcium carbonate. The material can then be processed again later to pull the carbon dioxide gas back out. There are many other methods to remove the CO2 from air, but they all share the problem of costs. And if used at large scale, more CO2 might be emitted moving stuff around than was originally removed. In terms of long-term storage, the most common strategy proposed right now is to put the stuff in the ground. If you can find some gaps in the earth, you can pump the stuff in there and seal up the hole. Hopefully it won't leak out again anytime soon. If you have the carbon captured in a solid form of some kind, such as when it's bound to a mineral after scrubbing, you might be able to just bury it. The technology can, at best, help mitigate the effects of life-sustaining processes that we can't realistically convert to run on clean energy. 
capturing carbon, putting it back into fuel and burning it again doesn't make anything truly zero emissions. It's just better than burning fossil fuels. But nothing happens for free, even in terms of clean energy and impact. Again, sounds like a good thing, right? Well, no. It means burn stuff, but then grab a hold of all the carbon that comes out and hide it away somewhere, preferably in a hole in the ground like a mineshaft. The problem is that this tech is, at the moment, extremely rudimentary, it's very energy intensive and it's not being used in the appropriate manner. Mark Z. Jacobson on the, or Mark Z. Jacobson on the Fully Charged podcast gave an example of why CCUS can be a non-starter. He discussed the whole topic of carbon capture and he called it a scam. He said there are a number of problems with it. Firstly, it doesn't even pretend to reduce air pollution. It only increases pollution. It only reduces carbon dioxide, which is not actually a pollutant. You need 16,000 parts per million of carbon dioxide to harm a human. And the background is 415 parts per million right now, as of April 2021. The reason it actually increases air pollution is because you need a huge amount of energy to run carbon capture equipment. And where does this energy come from? I'll let Mark explain. There was one carbon capture plant uh, in the United States, in Texas, and it was actually shut down last year because it was so inefficient. But so they added carbon capture to a coal plant to try to take the CO2 out of the coal, coal uh, plant emissions. But what did they use to run the, run the carbon capture equipment? They actually built a natural gas uh, electricity generating plant to run the carbon capture equipment for the coal plant. How mindless is that? They then, because then they have to mine for the natural gas. So there's more mining of gas and leaked methane and yeah. other pollutants due to, the, due to the mining process. Then they burn the natural gas. None of that CO2 from the burning of the natural gas is captured. And they produce the electricity. So they have more air pollution from that. And then they, uh, then they use the electricity to run the carbon capture equipment. It turned out the carbon capture equipment was rolling it, only over 20 years, it would only reduce about 10% of the CO2. Right. Then what did they do with the CO2? They piped it to a nearby oil field, mixed it with the oil to make it less dense so it could rise to the surface quicker so that they could capture more oil. Half the CO2 is in the oil and it gets burned when the oil is used. More pollution, more CO2. And what's more, the gas plant cost a billion dollars and it managed to reduce the carbon dioxide output of the coal plant by a mere 10%. Consumers have to foot the bill for this in higher oil charges and climate change. Overall, you can only increase air pollution or keep it the same, and you can only keep it the same if you use renewables to power the capture equipment. By using the renewables, you're not using that to replace the coal or gas, and using renewables to replace coal or gas reduces mining, reduces air pollution, and it reduces CO2. Overall, this means carbon capture appears to be better than it actually is in practice. So let's look at the whole area of decarbonisation. That's the overarching term for removing carbon from our atmosphere or more specifically, uh, not allowing carbon to go into our atmosphere. And this is where the majority of the work needs to be focused. It basically means stopping the carbon being taken out of the ground in the first place and finding substitutions for the stuff. And there are a number of aspects of decarbonisation that need to be considered. First of all, not creating carbon at all, or should I say not releasing carbon at all. B, replacing things that create carbon with things that don't. So, for example, using hydrogen in steel manufacturing green hydrogen, of course, instead of coal or coke. C is using low carbon energy sources where possible, wind, solar, geothermal, tidal, etc. 
and D is making better use of current renewable energy through a smart grid. And this is where people like Octopus Energy come in with their time of day tariffs such as Agile and Go. There are five technologies commonly identified in the whole area of decarbonisation. Electrifying heat, so furnaces are powered by electricity rather than by burning fuels. And green energy must still be used in this case, obviously. Using hydrogen as a furnace steam, a chemical feedstock or a reactant in chemical processes. Using biomass as a source of energy or feedstock. In other words, replacing coal with biocoal or gas with biogas. Uh, one example is charcoal, which is made by converting wood into coal and it has a CO2 footprint of zero. Should I say it has an additional CO2 footprint of zero because there's obviously CO2 that's been released into the air when the charcoal is made by burning the original wood. Carbon capture and storage, which we've talked about, this is where greenhouse gases are isolated from other natural gases, compressed and injected into the earth to avoid being emitted into the atmosphere. And carbon capture and usage. And the aim of this method is to turn industrial gases into something valuable, such as ethanol or raw materials for the chemical industry. Now, not all of these follow the stop burning stuff philosophy. And as we've already identified, some of them are not particularly efficient. Uh, regardless of that, it's incumbent on us as the human race to help protect our place on the planet by slowing down or preferably stopping the burning of fossil fuels. At this point, a little sidebar. There's a lot of talk in climate change circles about killing the planet. And it's not entirely accurate. When we talk about climate change, we're talking about killing the planet's ability to sustain life. The planet itself will be fine. The planet will survive. In hundreds and thousands of years, it'll be back to how it was before humans lived here. What we're really talking about here is ruining the planet's ability to support humans. That's a pretty big problem. If you want to understand more about this concept, look for a topic called the Fermi Paradox and the Great Filter. There's a link in the show notes. Okay, back to your regularly scheduled musings. So what can an individual do? Well, I talked earlier about my carbon footprint from all the travelling I did. Well, now comes the payback. There are any number of things an individual can do when it comes to minimising your carbon footprint. And the first thing you can do is follow the prime mantra. Stop burning stuff. And this means anything which uses combustion in any form. It can be major things such as swapping your car for an EV if you haven't already done so. Getting rid of the log burner in your house. Stop burning candles. Don't barbecue. Next, you can attempt to reduce any travel in fossil fuel vehicles of all types. Try and find electric versions of whatever you usually travel in. Trains, buses, taxis. As I already mentioned, get an EV if possible. Stop foreign travel in planes and boats. No, I didn't say stop foreign travel. I said just stop it in planes and boats. You can take the Eurostar to Europe because it's electric. Over in Europe, a lot of foreign trains are also electric. Or cycle wherever you go on a holiday. Yeah, it, it sounds ridiculous cycling on holiday, but there are people who do it. Close to home. Insulate your house better. Trapping the cold in summer and heat in winter reduces the heating and cooling needs, thereby stopping power companies burning stuff to meet your heating or cooling needs. Swap out gas for electric and appliances, heat pumps for heating, heat batteries for water heating, and convection hubs and electric cookers for cooking. And please get rid of that oil burning argument, Mrs. Featherington Smythe. Lastly, install solar. The beauty of solar is that in many instances you can use what you need when it's light and pipe the rest back into grid to both earn new money and keep the grid greener. Octopus Energy have an outgoing octopus rate which allows you to pipe your unneeded solar back into the grid 
and get charged, or should I say, and get paid, either a fixed rate of 5.5p per kilowatt hour or a variable rate which tracks the wholesale price on the energy market. If you have batteries installed, it makes it easier to manage your usage and store the solar power coming in. Of course, this is going to be expensive. Not everybody's going to be able to do everything. Most people aren't going to be able to do too much, and some people aren't going to be able to do anything. There are government grants and schemes to help people do this, but yes, it will cost money. And the calculation you need to do is, do I pay something now, or do I pay much more later? And that's the issue that everybody, individuals and government alike, are struggling with now. And there is no easy answer. Well, there is an easy answer, but implementing that easy answer isn't straightforward and is unfortunately politically fraught. I do recognise, however, that not everybody is going to want to do all of these things. I mean, who wants to stop their yearly trip to Walt Disney World just to save a few grams of carbon dioxide? Well, in 2019, 7.1 million people flew into Orlando Airport from an international destination and 43 million flew in domestically. To put this into context, according to the Flight Emissions Calculator, which has a link in the show notes, you, the wife and the two kids flying Gatwick to Orlando are going to be accountable for 10 tonnes of carbon dioxide emissions for the return flights between you. So that's two and a half tonnes each. To limit global warming to a relatively safe one and a half degrees Celsius, it's estimated that individuals should have a yearly budget of 1.6 metric tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent emissions. Your trip to Orlando has already blown that out of the water by using over one and a half years worth of the budget for the one journey. Multiply that by every family you know who likes to do a nice transatlantic journey every year on holiday or even UK to Australia and the problem becomes clearer. Which brings me nicely back to where we started with my carbon footprint from flying. I wanted to calculate my carbon footprint for the flights I'd done back in the day but given that modern aircraft are more efficient than they were in the early 90s and I can't remember exactly how many flights I actually did, it was a bit of an exercise in futility. I do know, however, that I've flown to Frankfurt Airport 400 times. Don't ask me how I know that figure, it's just something that stuck in my mind. Now, assuming each flight was from Brussels, where I was living for a lot of the time, it wasn't, some were from Heathrow, some were from Berlin, but Brussels acts as a nice average. The carbon footprint from my Frankfurt flights alone is 40 tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent. That's 25 years of the carbon dioxide equivalent budget just for that one destination. And don't get me started on those years I was living in London and working in Chicago, travelling eight or nine times per year at 2.3 tonnes per trip. Can I ever offset that carbon dioxide? Probably not. But personally, I'm looking at getting solar, a battery and a heat pump over the next 12 months, which will help to offset my current carbon footprint and hopefully go somewhere towards reducing the future carbon I put into the atmosphere. That way I get to average out my carbon footprint over my lifetime and feel just a teeny weeny little bit better about what I did back in the 90s. But even if you can't afford any of that, and many, many people can't, look at things like properly insulating your home. Look at going onto an electricity supplier using 100% renewable energy. Look at swapping out that log burner in your living room for an electric fire. My parents have a lovely one. Yeah, it's not quite the same, but the pollution reduction alone is worth it. So let's look at the big counter argument that will get thrown around whenever carbon reduction is raised. 
One difference is me having a wood-burning fire going to make when China is opening all those coal mines and exporting coal all over the world. Perfectly valid argument. China is one of the world's largest miner and exporter of coal. But they're also the world's largest producer and user of solar panels. At the end of 2020, China's total installed photovoltaic capacity was 253 gigawatts which is one-third of the world's total installed photovoltaic capacity of 760 gigawatts. Sure, it's only 3.5% of China's total power requirements, but it's growing. Alongside China's commitment to peak its carbon emissions by 2030 and the continual increase in solar power production, it can be said that China is pushing towards being a green country a lot quicker than places such as the United States, 97.2 gigawatts of photovoltaic at the end of 2020, and Australia, with 16.3 gigawatts of installed photovoltaic capacity in 2019. Just for some comparison, as I write this at midday on a Tuesday in July, the total power requirement for the United Kingdom is 33 gigawatts of electricity. The fact is, there are always arguments for why you shouldn't do something that's going to be painful and potentially expensive. But on the other side of the hesitation and denial is greater pain and even greater expense. Stop burning stuff. It's time for a cool EV or renewable thing to share with your listeners. A couple of months back, the guys from Zero Carbon World broke a world record for the fastest land's end to John O'Groat's journey in an electric car. Well, this week, another similar record was broken. It was the most efficient trip over that same route in an electric car. Paul Clifton and his two co-drivers completed the 840-mile journey from John O'Groat's to land's end in 27 hours with... 44 minutes of charging time. They drove a Ford Mark E and averaged six and a half miles per kilowatt hour. To save energy on the journey south, the aircon was kept off, the windows closed and the radio wasn't used. And the team travelled through the night to avoid any traffic congestion. Although with a 27 hour journey, you were going to be travelling through the night anyway. If my calculations are right, that means it only consumed 129 kilowatt hours of electricity. In my Kia Soul, that will get me, at this time of the year, about 581 miles. Or, John O'Groats to about Stroud in Gloucestershire. Of course, a lot of the EV haters commenting on the story in the news see the headline, 27 hours for 840 miles, and don't understand that it wasn't meant to be a speed journey. It was using hypermiling techniques, and the journey averaged 31 miles an hour, which is fairly slow for a route which has a large amount of motorways on it. For comparison, the Zero Carbon World Trip did the same journey in a Tesla and they stopped for 1 hour and 15 minutes to recharge and that was using the fastest chargers available, the Tesla superchargers and the Ionity units. But well done anyway. And that's the show for today. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you want to contact me, I can be emailed at evmusings at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at musingsev. If you want to support the podcast and the newsletter, please consider contributing to becoming an EV Musings patron. The link is in the show notes. If you want a quick reference ebook to read on your Kindle, I wrote a little something called So You've Gone Electric. It's available on Amazon worldwide for the measly sum of 99p or equivalent, and it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. Links for everything we've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps raise visibility and extend our reach in search engines. If you've reached this part of the podcast and are still listening, thank you, why not let me know you've got to this point by tweeting me at MusingsEV with the words 
GHGs are bad. Hashtag, if you know, you know. Nothing else. Thanks, as always, to my co-founder, Simon. You know, from time to time, he comments about how people love to go to Disneyland, but can't stand the It's a Small World ride. But still, they go back time and time again. How mindless is that? Once again, thanks for listening. Bye.